Have you ever known anybody who didn't have a lot of moral scruples? Someone once said about a person who, like that, didn't have much scruples, and they said about her, she won't listen to her conscience because she doesn't want to take advice from total strangers. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. We're continuing in this Gospel. Today we're going to look at how one man killed his conscience and the consequences that followed. Have you ever known anybody who didn't have a lot of moral scruples? Someone once said about a person who, like that, didn't have much scruples, and they said about her, she won't listen to her conscience because she doesn't want to take advice from total strangers. <laughs> your conscience should be your best friend, not a total stranger. So here's the key idea. Sin creates guilt, and the solution to a guilty conscience is forgiveness, which Jesus freely gives to everyone who repents. Key idea. Sin creates guilt which is a problem for the human race, we're all sinners. And the solution to a guilty conscience is forgiveness, which Jesus freely gives to everyone who repents. We're going to come back to this theme throughout this morning. Jesus has been, remember, ministering in the region of Galilee in northern Israel for the past several months. He's in the second year of his ministry. The first year was spent mostly in southern Israel, down in Judea. And Rob's going to give you a map of the northern area of Galilee, which includes the Sea of Galilee, which is the uh, kind of the core region there. The city of Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee was where Jesus set up his ministry headquarters for the bulk of the ministry that took place in northern Israel. For centuries, the Sea of Galilee has been known for its rich fishing uh, history. There's been a very, very rich fishing tradition. There's warm water springs in the bottom of the lake, and there's also springs that feed the Jordan River. And so it's been a really rich fishing uh, ground uh, for centuries. In the first century, the population of Capernaum, it's a fishing village, was about 1,500 to 3,000 people. Just by way of reference, the city of Button Willow has about 1,500 people. So you kind of get an idea of how big the city of Capernaum was at that point in time. The city was chosen by Jesus. It was a very strategic city. Two trade routes came from through there, the Via Maris, which was the trade route by the sea, and then the King's Highway. And both of them went from Egypt all the way in the south, all the way to Damascus in the north. And they literally went right through Capernaum. So Jesus set up his ministry there because he knew there was going to be a lot of merchant trade and camel caravans that would go through there that would hear of his ministry and take the gospel to foreign countries. So Jesus has been preaching the gospel, healing hundreds and hundreds of sick people, casting out demons. The first five or six chapters of Mark just are miracle after miracle after miracle. And huge crowds are following him, and they're eager to see his miracles and be, healer, be healed. But the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, they are really ramping up opposition to Jesus. They really want him dead. They're plotting to kill him. 
because he threatens their religious monopoly over the people. They are using religion to oppress the people. Most of them are allied with Rome, uh, especially the Sadducees. And so they see Jesus as an existential threat to them. So when he begins to get those death threats, if you will, he begins to teach the crowd using parables. And we talked about that last week. Christ uses parables to conceal the truth from people who oppose and reject him. And then later on, we're going to see he explains the meaning of those parables to his disciples who follow uh, and receive him. So last week we talked about four miracles that Mark just puts back to back to back to back to demonstrate the deity of Christ. Remember last week he heals the, I mean, he calms the storm on a lake. He casts out a demon from a, um, a man in the region of the Gerasenes on the east side of the lake. He heals a woman who's had a hemorrhage for 12 years. And then finally he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He actually raised three people from the dead. Uh, the widow's son in Nain was the first one, and Jairus' daughter was number two, and Lazarus was number three. So today, we're going to take a look at the beginning part of this chapter. I'm going to highlight just the few, for first few verses. He travels from Capernaum southwest, and you can probably see on the map up there, to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, this is the second time he's been to Nazareth. The first time he went to Nazareth, they tried to kill him. They tried to push him off the cliff. There's a large precipice there. For those who've been to Israel, you know that you can die very quickly falling off that cliff. It's pretty steep. So you're saying, why would he go back? I mean, why go to your hometown when they want to murder you the first time? Well, that's the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, where he's rejected, he still loves people, and he went back. So he goes back and preaches at their synagogue a second time, and once again, they reject him. They repudiate him. His found family repudiates him. They just refuse to believe that someone they have known since childhood is actually the promised Messiah. How many of you have a medical doctor that's younger than you? And you say, well, that's a duh, right? I wouldn't go to one older than me. I mean, come on, they'd be really shaky. How many of you have a medical doctor that you knew when they were a child? There's a reason you don't go to a medical doctor you knew when they were a child. You still think of them as a child, right? I knew you when you were six years old, and now you're prescribing really strong medications for me? Really? Okay. We tend to view people in our life, and once we know them, we tend to lock them in at that level. How many of you have an elementary school teacher you still say Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so, right? <laughs> And they're not that much older than you, but you do that because you knew them when you were young and they were older, and so we use those names. Well, Jesus' family and these villagers, they said, we knew when you when you were a kid. We knew you when you were a carpenter. We knew your mother and your brothers and your sisters. How is it that you have all this wisdom? And how is it that you do these hundreds of miracles? And they wouldn't buy it despite the fact that for months in their region he has been doing hundreds of miracles, healing the sick, there's been demons uh, cast out, and they refuse to accept the evidence. So Jesus then sends out his 12 disciples on their first mission, and he gives them power to cast out demons and to heal. And the Holy Spirit working through his disciples is performing so many miracles that the word about the supernatural... Um, work that's being done gets even to King Herod. 
Let's pick up the narrative in verse 12. Mark 6, verse 12. They, the disciples, went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for his name, Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Here's the principle. Habitually doing what you know is wrong will harden your heart and can ultimately destroy your ability to respond to God. Habitually knowing, doing what you know is wrong will harden your heart and can ultimately destroy your ability to respond to God. The impact that the disciples are having on the ministry throughout this region reaches the ears of King Herod. He's the ruler of that region. Now, technically, Herod's not a king. He's a tetrarch, which means a ruler of a fourth part. He ruled over 25% of that particular area. He was ruling over a fourth part of Palestine at this particular time. Just to give you a little history, Israel has come under the authority of Rome in 63 B.C. when the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem. So they've been under Rome's thumb for at least since 63 B.C. It's probably now about now 32, 31, 32. So it's been 60 years that they've been under Rome's thumb. Rome's practice was to appoint a local ruler over a specific region. And they were held accountable to Rome. That governor over these particular regions was accountable to Rome for governance of that region. The local rulers had almost no independent power, virtually none. They ruled only by the favor of the Caesar. And their primary job, if you were a governor of Palestine or any of the governors over any of the Roman provinces, was real simple. Two things. Number one, keep the peace. We don't want a bunch of bloodshed. And number two, collect the taxes. For those of you that have not yet done your tax returns, you have a limited amount of time. Tomorrow is the day. And for those of you that do file an extension, here's been my experience. You will wait until October 14th to get them done. Because that's what people do to file extensions. They wait till the last minute, right? None of you would do that, of course, right? Okay. So the preeminent local ruler over this region, over all of Palestine, historically has been Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now, he was a foreigner. He was an Edomite. And he had ostensibly converted to Judaism. He really didn't practice it, but he took the name to kind of make himself acceptable to the local population. Now, the name Herod means son of a hero. The name Herod means son of a hero. And there are Herods throughout the New Testament. Lots and lots of Herods. They're all relatives. Herod the Great was the granddaddy of them all. He was paranoid. He was a vicious man. He murdered thousands of people, including several of his own wives and his own son. His sons, plural, he'd killed more than one. This was the same King Herod that had murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem that were two years and under. This was Herod the Great. Remember when the wise men came and told Herod, there's born a king of the Jews, and Herod got paranoid killed all the baby boys in Jerusalem under two years old. This Herod the Great had his own son Antipater killed five days before his own death. 
because he found out that his own son Antipater had planned to poison him. Great family, right? Now, in his will, Herod the Great requested that Caesar, Rome, divide his kingdom four ways upon his death. And, of course, his sons, true to form, went to Rome and disputed the will and said, this is not fair, you should do this and this and this. And Caesar divided the kingdom among three of his many sons. Rob's going to show you kind of a map of how the rulership, the governorship of this area was uh, at the time of Jesus' ministry. Herod's son Archelaus ruled over Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. That's Edom, and that's the orange chunk. That's Archelaus. Archelaus was the one who was ruling when Mary and Joseph came back from Egypt. Remember when God said, you get to Egypt because Herod's going to try to kill all the babies. They went to Egypt. Two years later, they come back. Herod the Great had died in the meanwhile, and his son Archelaus was ruling over Judea, which is southern uh, Israel. And he had a reputation for being very bloodthirsty. And so you remember that Mary and Joseph said, we're not going to settle here. We're going to move up north to Nazareth. So they moved up to Nazareth and raised Jesus there. Archelaus was deposed in 6 AD. Rome replaced him with a whole series of governors, one of which was Pontius Pilate. He was one of the ones who was ruling over Judea, of course, when Christ's ministry took place. Now, northwest of Galilee, you're going to see a site called Golan and Bashan. That was given to Herod Philip, another one of Herod the Great's kids. And he ruled there until he was replaced by Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa, another one of the sons, was the one who in Acts 12 got eaten by worms because he got the praise of men, thought he was a god, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to see a lot of Herods. Herod Philip, Herod Agrippa, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Galilee in the north and Perea on the east were ruled by Herod Antipas, and that's the yellow piece, right? He had the Galilee where the Sea of Galilee was, so he was the one who was ruling when Jesus was ministering in Galilee. On the east side of the Jordan was the region of Perea. Herod Antipas is the Herod of Mark 6, another one of Herod's kids. All three of these were subject to Tiberius Caesar. Caesar Augustus had died in AD 14, and Tiberius Caesar was the replacement for Caesar Augustus, and he ruled from 14 AD to 37 AD, and he was a pedophile, among other things. Herod Antipas, the Herod of Mark 6, built the city of Tiberius, which is on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful city if you've ever been there. Uh, and he built it to honor the emperor Tiberius, right? Unfortunately, they were about halfway through when they figured out it was built on an old Jewish cemetery. So no Jew would ever go into Tiberius because that was desecration. So it was really a Greek and Roman city. Now this Herod Antipas, the one of Mark 6, ruled from 4 BC to 39 AD, about 42 years. And just like his dad, he was paranoid about his position as king. So he, in Mark 6, has been hearing rumors that Jesus is doing all this supernatural stuff. I mean, and so he's really concerned that Jesus is attracting big crowds. And you get a populist movement, and somebody's following somebody other than him, and they might try and stage a revolt. So he's a pretty paranoid guy. Everybody in this region is trying to explain Jesus' supernatural miracles. One of the things I don't think we understand Jesus did not do a few miracles. He was healing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. 
during his ministry in Galilee. I mean hundreds. Disease was very, very rare when Jesus got through a village. He healed over and over and over and over. So there were literally hundreds of people being healed at that point in time. And people were trying to explain his great power. Some of them said, well, he's Elijah. Some said, he's really John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now Herod, this Herod Antipas, had never met Jesus face to face, but this power that Jesus was showing in doing all these miracles reminded him of John the Baptist. And Herod knew John the Baptist real well, because sometime earlier, Herod had ordered John the Baptist to be beheaded, and now he says over and over and over again, John, whom I beheaded, has risen from the dead. He's got a guilty conscience. He's haunted by the murder of this innocent man that he ordered. And so he's got a guilty conscience over having murdered John the Baptist. He's trying to deal with that guilty conscience right now. So this passage of Scripture not only records the death of John the Baptist, which is really the, the core issue of this part of chapter 6, it records the death of Herod's conscience. And that's what we want to talk about today. For those of you that are old enough to remember which is all of us, vaguely. In the Disney movie Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket tells Pinocchio to always let your conscience be your guide. Now that only works if your conscience is informed and aligned with God's word. Because your conscience tells you what, your conscience tells you that you ought to do what is right. But your conscience can't always tell you what right is. You understand that? Your conscience tells you that you ought to do what is right. But your conscience cannot always tell you what right is. Your conscience can only guide you by the standard of right and wrong that, that it has been taught. For example, if your conscience has been taught to believe that God's word is right, then if you disobey God's word, your conscience will convict you of sin and you'll feel guilt, right? Guilt is one way that God tells you you're screwing up. By the way, guilt is a gift. If you're feeling guilty, that's like a red light in the dashboard of your car. The red light is not the problem. It tells you there's a problem under the hood, and you need to take care of it at that point. If your conscience has been trained to believe that stealing is okay, but adultery is wrong, then the only time your conscience will bother you is if you commit adultery, but your conscience won't bother if you steal. Correct? Say yes. So a thief, a thief would feel guilty if they ratted out on a fellow thief. An honest person would feel guilty if they did not rat out the thief. Right? So your conscience is a guide, but it's only reliable to the extent that it's been educated. And in our culture today, how would you evaluate the conscience of the general population? They have a conscience, but it certainly has been shaped by a different philosophy than a biblical one. Today's population, the large consciousness general rule of thumb, has been shaped by the philosophy that truth is relative and truth is subjective. Every person figures out what is right or wrong for themselves. And nobody's business to tell you what is right or wrong. The problem with that is that destroys the society because it ends in anarchy. Over time, the culture disintegrates because no one agrees on what laws everyone should obey. I mean, if you go to a stop sign and say, well, 
I've decided that that stop sign does not apply to me because I have decided that in, in my perspective is a stop sign everybody else should obey but not me. Well, if you do enough of that, you wind up with fatalities. So at the end of the day, a culture only survives if there's an agreed upon standard for what right or wrong is. So subjective and individual truth does not work. God has put a basic awareness of right and wrong in every human heart. Romans 1 and 2 tells us that. So when you do what you know is wrong, what you're doing is training your conscience to not bother you. When you do what you know is wrong, you're training your conscience not to bother you. How many of you heard of the little tale of the boy who cried wolf? Right? He cried wolf even when there was no wolf. After he did this several times, what happened? The villagers learned to ignore him. Then when the wolf really does show up and eat the flock, there's no one to help him. Because he's trained the villagers not to listen to him because he's cried wolf. The Bible speaks about people who have seared their consciences with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4. Now when you sear flesh, right, you burn it. You cauterize it. It's like branding the hide of an animal. When you brand the hide of an animal, it creates scar tissue. And scar tissue does no longer feel pain because the nerves that feel pain have been destroyed. When I was a kid, we worked in the field from the time I was about eight years old, and we never wore gloves. And so when you handle hoes and shovels and stuff, you get calluses. How many of you ever had a callus? I know none of your children have calluses except on their thumbs. <laughs> That's the only calluses they get, right, you know? So a callus is a buildup of dead skin. It, it, it's like a corn on your foot, right? And that dead skin insulates you from feeling pain because nerves do not go through a callus or a corn. So someone with a calloused conscience or a seared conscience is someone who's repeatedly practiced what their conscience has told them is wrong. They've repeatedly done it even though a conscience told them wrong. So now they no longer feel guilt. By the way, your ability to feel pain is one of the things that keeps you alive. I have quite a number of friends that are diabetic, and ultimately the nerve endings don't always conduct sensation. That's a real problem. I had a very good friend, if he didn't wear tennis shoes everywhere he went, he could smack his foot into something and it could be bleeding and he'd never know it until they saw the trail of blood. He didn't feel pain. So guilt is God's feedback mechanism to tell us that we need to take a corrective action. When we sin against our conscience, we practice what we know is wrong and we're putting a callus on our conscience, we're searing our conscience, and pretty soon we no longer feel that guilt. Guilt is really like a spiritual GPS. Guilt is like um, Siri who tells you, make a U-turn, you're going the wrong way. Who talks to you on your GPS? It's not Siri. I don't know what her name is. Anyway, somebody talks on your GPS and tells you when you're going the right way? Called your spouse. <laughs> so... If you have a good conscience, a good conscience is one that knows the truth, obeys the truth, and is free from guilt. However, 
when you know what is right and you persistently do what is wrong, you're cauterizing your conscience so that it no longer feels guilt. That was King Herod. Verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Duh. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Here's the principle. People who love their sin hate God and his people because God's word convicts them of sin and corrects them with a guilty conscience. People who love their sin hate God and his people because God's word convicts them of sin and corrects them with a guilty conscience. Now, Herod Antipas, the Herod of today, had married the daughter of a, an Arabian king, the kingdom of the Nabataeans down south. Uh, the king was named Aretas, uh, A-R-E-T-A-S, and that's, of course, modern-day Saudi Arabia. So he had married this woman. But Herod and his wife had visited Rome, and they met Herod's half-brother Philip, and he was married to his half-niece Herodias. Rob is going to give you a diagram, and this is complicated, so I'm going to walk you through this. This is the diagram of Herod the Great's family tree. And it's only about a third of it. This is the part of the lesson that is soap opera. This is drama and trauma and stupid on steroids. This is, this is stuck on stupid. Now, the, the, the dark blue at the top is Herod the Great. The red boxes are wives. There's, a, there's four of them listed. He's actually got ten of them. If you go off to the left-hand side, you'll see six little boxes. He was married ten times. These are the wives that produced the progeny that historically were significant. So these are the four wives. Green boxes are children. Herod the Great actually had ten wives, but the four here are Mariamne one, Malthace, Mariamne two, and Cleopatra. Those are the red boxes. So follow along with me. Mariamne one, first red box, had a son with Herod the Great named Aristobulus. He was murdered in 7 BC, so his green box is blank. The first green box on the left is a small blank one. That's Aristobulus. He was knocked off in 7 BC. Aristobulus had two children. King Herod Agrippa I, dark blue box number nine, and Herodias, purple box number three. Those are the grandchildren of Herod the Great. So Herodias is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Now Herodias, purple box, is married to her uncle, Herod Philip, green box number two, who is the son of Herod the Great and his wife, Mariamne II, third red box. Now, by the way, if you have two wives with the same name, that could be a problem. <laughs> However, Herod had Mariamne I murdered in 29 BC. So she was dead before Mariamne II came along, so he didn't have a problem with any mistaken names. So Herod Philip, or Herod Herodias, the purple box, is married to Herod Philip, right? Herod Philip and Herodias have a daughter named Salome, pink box. Just track this along. Herod Antipas, 
green box number six, and Herodias, purple box, have an affair in Rome. They divorce their respective spouses and marry each other. In 37 AD, King Aditas of the Arabian Kingdom, he's the father of Herod Antipas's first wife, Petraea, he gathers an army and goes to war with Herod for divorcing his daughter. That would slow down some divorces if you knew the father-in-law was going to come after you and kill you. So there's a big bloodshed. He wins a great victory over Herod's army. Herod's got to be rescued by Rome. So at any rate, Herod marries his niece Herodias, who is also his sister-in-law. Because she was married to his half-brother Philip, who's still alive in Rome. So Herodias has now married two of her uncles, Herod Philip and Herod Antipas. And Herodias' daughter, Salome, pink box, later marries Philip the Tetrarch, green box number eight, who is her granduncle. This is all in the family on steroids, right? Got all that? So, John the Baptist confronts Herod, Antipas, and he says, you have an incestuous relationship and an adulterous relationship with your brother's wife, who is also your niece, and he does it publicly, not privately, and he does it regularly, not just once. Herodias is furious, and she wants to kill John, but Herod is influenced, unfortunately, by his wife more than by what is right. So Herod kind of reminds you of King Ahab. Ahab was really controlled by Jezebel, who ran the kingdom behind his back. She imported Baal worship into Israel, and Ahab follows her into idolatry and wickedness. Herod fears John. Number one, he's righteous, but even more so, John has a following, a huge following. He's got thousands of people down to River Jordan following him, and he is publicly confronting Herod for his sinful behavior, and he's got a big crowd that follows his teaching, and Herod is paranoid that this is going to result in a popular revolt against his power. Rob's going to show you a picture. John is down by the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea, and he's preaching and teaching and baptizing, and he's preaching repentance. And apparently Herod sends troops, arrest John, and imprisons him in the massive palace fortress prison called Machiris, which means black fortress, by the way. This was a, this was a place that Herod had built. Uh, it's on the northeastern shore of the Dead Sea. You're going to notice that many of the Herods built fortress palaces. If you've been to Masada, which some of you have been, Herod the Great built that place. This was Herod Antipas, his kid, and he builds another huge fortress down south. It's called a place to go when they want to take your head off. So none of these people were popular rulers, and they were always paranoid about uprisings and assassins. So they all built these palace castles uh, way out in the way where it was very defendable. This fortress is about 2,300 feet above sea level. And the Dead Sea is about 1388 below sea level. So it's, it's pretty high up overlooking uh, the sea. And you won't see the, the castle there today. It's been destroyed. But it's a pretty significant chunk of dirt on top of a hill. Very defendable. So John's in prison. And at least he's safe from Herod's wife because he's in prison. Here's the paradox. 
Herod arrests John, puts him in prison, but he enjoys listening to him. He enjoys listening to him preach. But it says his preaching left Herod confused or conflicted or perplexed. So Herod is a double-minded man, to say the least. He's afraid of John because he knows he's righteous, he knows he's holy. He enjoys hearing John preach, but he loves his sin. And he hates to hear John confirm about his sin. So Herod is regularly exposed to God's truth, and he routinely disobeys the truth he hears. We have a culture that does this all the time. Is this culture regularly exposed to God's truth? You can't live in this country and not have access to God's truth. It's streaming everywhere. It's on television. It's on the web, etc., etc. And we have a culture that knows the truth and routinely disobeys it. God's pulling Herod one way. Satan's pulling Herod the other way. Herod married a God-hating woman. And she's influencing him more than God is. John is. So he hardens his heart against the truth. Because he routinely practices what he knows is wrong. He sears his conscience with a hot iron. And we're going to find out he's going to lose his ability to respond to God altogether. Verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, by the way, never say this. Not to a teenager, not to nobody. Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Here's the principle. Pray before you promise. Otherwise, your promises may lead to irrevocable regrets. Some people have said, I do. And then three years later said, why did I make that promise? Pray before you promise, otherwise your promises may lead to irrevocable regrets. So most Jewish people did not even celebrate their birthdays. And they would never attend a party hosted by Gentiles, especially this Gentile. The Romans were big party animals. They put a huge value on birthdays and they held huge parties to celebrate. Herod's birthday party was going to be the social event of the year. I mean, anybody who's anybody in this region is going to get invited to this party. The word lords here, you know, means nobles, the political elite. The military commanders were officers in charge of a thousand soldiers. This was, this was the big elite party. The leading men of Galilee were Jews who were very politically connected with Rome and Herod. They favored compromise with Rome. They were called the Herodians because they supported the Herod kings, all of them, the family dynasty. Many at this banquet were Jewish tax collectors. They had literally purchased the tax franchise from Rome, which means they had the ability to collect taxes for Rome from their fellow Jewish citizens. They would collect and they would send the requisite amount to Rome but they would charge some multiple of what was required. It was like if we had IRS agents who said, you owe $2,000, when in fact you only owed $1,000, 
you would pay them two under threat of death because they had the Roman army behind them, and then they kept the thousand. Zacchaeus was a very wealthy tax collector. Most of the tax collectors were very wealthy because they overcharged. Rome didn't care what they charged. Rome just cared that you, you give us what's ours. Most of the Jewish community viewed them as traitors because they were in bed with Rome. They signed a deal with Rome to collect taxes from their fellow countrymen, and they kept lots and lots above and beyond. So a lot of folks were there. So the Jews who attended this party were not your traditional Jewish religious families at all. This was the political elite that were in bed with Rome against their own people. So this party was held at the palace at Machiris down by the Dead Sea. And this was a male-only party, no women allowed. What it really was is a stag-drinking debauchery party. And it got only worse when Herodias sends her 15-year-old daughter Salome to dance in front of this drunken crowd. And she wasn't dancing the polka either. This was exotic. This was probably very sexually provocative before a crowd of drunken men. And most of them were old enough to be her father or even her grandfather. So this was shameful, beyond shameful. Jewish tradition would never allow a woman to dance in front of a group of men. That would not happen. Most Gentile mothers would have forbidden their daughters to do what Salome did. But this family is corrupt to the core. Salome's a 15-year-old teenager. Her adoptive father is Herod. And he doesn't care about her. He doesn't protect her. Her mother, Herodias, is using her daughter to set a trap for her husband. She sets... Salome up to dance for Herod because she knows that Herod likes to impress people. He likes to be large and in charge. He likes to drink and he's rash with his mouth. So she's using her daughter to trap Herod to get what she wants, which is John the Baptist dead. So Salome dances. Everyone's dazzled. They're all drunk. And Herod wants to be others to be impressed by his Power, he opens his big mouth and he makes her a rash promise and he says, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. How many of you think that's a good idea with a 15 year old? <laughs> he ups the ante. He swears an oath before God and before all his guests, Whatever you ask of me, I will give up to half of my kingdom. Now, that was just a big mouth brag. He didn't have any kingdom to give her. He only ruled because Rome let him rule, it all belonged to Rome. But he wants to impress his guests with his wealth. So like you and I have done from time to time. Have you ever dug a hole with your tongue? And then fallen in? And the first rule is when you're in a hole, stop digging. So when you're in a hole that you've dug with your tongue, the first thing to do is stop talking. General idea. If you want an Old Testament example of the, of, the, of, the, of the danger of rash promises, King Saul would be a really good model. They're at war with the enemy, the Philistines, and Saul makes this oath, rash promise, that almost costs the life of his own son, Jonathan. Beware rash promises, because what you vow, you're obligated to keep. Verse 24. And this 
12, 15 year old girl, Salome, goes out and says to her mother, what shall I ask for? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And all the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded them to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Matthew 14, 13 tells us Jesus' reaction to this. It says, Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Here's the principle. Those who refuse to repent spin a web of sin that first enslaves them and finally destroys them. Those who refuse to repent spin a web of sin that first enslaves them and finally destroys them. So Salome leaves the banquet hall to ask her mother, what should I ask for? And you think, ah, it's pretty good. 15-year-old, ask mom, what should I ask for? That would be okay if mother was a godly woman, but mm, Herodias is not a godly woman. Herodias is evil, and she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. See, Herodias had a guilty conscience. John the Baptist called her out on the fact that she was married to her uncle and had left another uncle to marry this one. She was convicted of her sins, and she didn't like feeling guilty. So you know what we do when someone makes us feel guilty? Kill the messenger. Right? Don't listen to those people who make us feel bad. People that love their sin don't want to be feeling guilty about their sin. So she didn't have it figured out yet. If she killed God's messenger, she would simply add to her guilt. But she, anyway, she had premeditated this for a period of time. This was not a one-off. This was a planned process. And unfortunately, Salome has the same DNA as her mother. She's only 15 years old, and she doesn't even appear shocked that the reward for her exotic dance requires the murder of an innocent man. There's no record that she tries to talk mom out of it, that she responds back. She hurries back into the banquet hall. And you say, well, why would she race back into the banquet hall? Well, she wants to get to Herod before he can sober up and change his mind. I mean, he might have figured out this was not a bad, this is not a good promise. So she demands in front of public, all his lords and his political elite and everything else, I want John to be executed right now. You may, you promised. You promised in front of everybody. Now Herod's got a problem. His big mouth has backed him into a corner and there's not a lot he thinks he can do about it. And she not only demands that John be executed right now, she, it was her idea that she wants his head brought in on a platter. This is really remarkable. I mean, it's almost macabre. You know, I want to bring a dead man's head in on a platter to a banquet. Really? By the way, there were kings back in the day who wanted proof that in fact, you were really dead. And the best way is, let me see the head. 
That way I know that, you know, it really occurred. Well, that's what happened here. Herod has been trapped by his tongue and his pride. And he could have confronted this evil request. He could have confessed before this crowd, that was a stupid promise I made, and it's an immoral thing for you to ask me to murder somebody innocent. That's a violation of justice, and I'm not going to do it. But his conscience is so seared at this point in time, he is so used to sinning against the truth. He is so used to doing what he knows is wrong, his conscience no longer bothers him. It doesn't stop him. It doesn't talk to him. He wants to impress his guests more than he wants to do what's right. So pure pressure and pride got to him. He gives the command to have him murdered, have him, have him beheaded. So he has an innocent man, a righteous man, martyred because he didn't want to hear the truth. Jesus Christ said about John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That is remarkable. He was the greatest of the prophets. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And there's no record, unfortunately, that any of the Jewish leaders at this banquet did anything to save John. Which shouldn't surprise us because these folks were allied with Rome, allied with Herod. These folks hated Jesus, and so they hated John, who was the forerunner of Jesus. John's work is done. His ministry lasted probably about 180 days, maybe about six months. He's been in prison for about a year. So he ministered on the Jordan River, giving testimony that the forerunner, Jesus Christ, was coming. He was in prison for about 12 months. Jesus is up north ministering in Galilee. John's in prison. So he probably spent a year in prison before his execution. Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to all those who love Him. We in this culture have not yet been threatened with martyrdom. It is a great honor to be called upon to die for the name of Jesus Christ. God would not entrust that to most people. But if he calls upon you to do it, he will give you the strength, the supernatural strength to carry out and to remain faithful unto death. Most of us have trouble remaining faithful under ridicule, let alone faithful unto death. Because people that love their sin don't want to hear the truth. That's the nature of sin. You're in good company if you're ridiculed for telling people the truth. So after John's execution, his disciples come, bury the body, and then they come and told Jesus. It says, when Jesus heard of John's murder, he took a boat to a secluded place on the Sea of Galilee to be alone. John was Jesus' follower, Jesus' friend, and Jesus' second cousin. Jesus' mother Mary was the first cousin to John's mother Elizabeth. They were second cousins. And Jesus knew that John's violent death was a foretaste of what? His own death, which was coming quickly. Now, Herod, the king, only met Jesus one time. 
Luke 23 records that when Jesus was on trial, Pontius Pilate sent him to Herod because Jesus was ministering in Galilee and that was Herod's jurisdiction. Pontius Pilate was the governor over Judea, Jerusalem down south. Galilee was up north and that was Herod's jurisdiction. Pilate didn't want to make a decision, so he said, let's send him to Herod, let Herod make a decision. Luke 23 tells us that Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus face to face because he now knew that Jesus was not John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. He was scared that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead and he was going to have to face John, whom he had murdered, and he knew he was innocent. He hasn't figured out that he is meeting Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he has one last opportunity, face-to-face, personal interview with Jesus, because Pilate sent him to him to render judgment. Luke tells us that Herod questioned Jesus at length, and Jesus didn't answer him a single word. The Bible says that Herod had just wanted Jesus to perform some kind of miraculous sign. You know, entertain me with some spectacle. Jesus didn't answer him a word. Jesus knew that Herod had sinned against his conscience so many times that he would never respond to the gospel. There is a movie, I think it's called The Green Mile. And there's a line in there that's haunting. Tom Hanks, I think, was a star of that. And uh, when you're on death row, you come out to walk around the prison grounds. They say, dead men walking. You have a death sentence. You're on death row. Herod was a dead man walking. He had rejected and rejected and rejected and sinned against what he knew it was right until the point in time where his conscience was so cauterized and so seared and so callous it no longer spoke to him. He was beyond repentance and he was still alive. And there are people like that today. We don't know that, fortunately. That's not ours to know. That's the Lord's to know. That's why God says, continue to tell people about me. Continue to tell people that they can be saved, they can be forgiven. But it's extraordinarily sobering for us today. When your conscience talks to you, when you feel guilty, when I feel guilty, we need to be sensitive to that conscience. We should have a very sensitive conscience that when there's a, there's a twinge, there's a conviction, there's a, a bad feeling, there's a guilt about I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that. Brad doesn't sin so much by his actions, but my tongue can dig a very deep hole. I know that. So I don't know where your temptations are, but when the Holy Spirit speaks to your conscience... That's a call to repentance. That's a call to forgiveness. That's a call to say, Lord, cleanse me of this. Wash me. Confess that sin. Maintain a free-flowing, open relationship with your Savior. Because if we get used to sin, if we become familiar with it, if it becomes routine, then we will no longer repent. And then we are held liable, obviously, before the judgment seat of Christ.
You know, Herod was a very ambitious man. His wife, Herodias, encouraged him to go to Caligula, who was the emperor of Rome, and ask for more territory. Because he wanted to be king over more territory. And Caligula stripped his throne from him, gave his territory to his brother, Agrippa, and exiled him to modern-day France in Lyon. He died in obscurity. And unless he repented before death, he is now certainly in hell, separated from God eternally. And his life is a very serious warning to all of us. You can be exposed to truth day by day by day by day. But we are accountable for what we do with it. That we are to live according to it. That when the Holy Spirit speaks in that still small voice because He loves us, guilt is not a bad thing. I know there's false guilt. I'm not talking about that. But I would beg you, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When you read the Word of God and you go, Oh man, He's talking about me. Yeah, He's talking about you. That means you have business to do with Jesus. Right? He wants that loving relationship. And God does that because He doesn't want us to get comfortable with the cancer of sin because it will destroy us. Let's review. And then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, key idea. Sin creates guilt. And the solution to a guilty conscience, by the way, we have a culture that tries to deal with guilt lots and lots of ways. How many people you know try and drink their conscience away? Drug their conscience away. Sex their conscience away. Uh, email their conscience away. Twitter their conscience away. They're busy, busy, busy doing everything to cover it up as opposed to deal with it. Busy their conscience away. Can't ever sit, right? The solution to a guilty conscience is none of that. Solution to a guilty conscience is forgiveness, which Jesus Christ gives freely to everyone who repents. Number two, habitually doing what you know is wrong will harden your heart and can ultimately destroy your ability to respond to God. Number three, people who love their sin hate God and God's people because God's word convicts them of sin and corrects them with a guilty conscience. Number four, pray before you promise. Otherwise, your promises may lead to irrevocable regrets. And lastly, those who repent, refuse to repent, spin a spider web of sin that first enslaves them and finally destroys them. It's very sobering. But the Word of God speaks truth. Amen? And truth sets us free because of Jesus Christ's forgiveness. Now that you know, do. I do love you. Read ahead, and we will carry on next week, Lord willing. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.